to Escape Artists. I'm your host, fiction author and creative entrepreneur Marisha Pink, and this is episode two. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, the full show notes and links to everything that we discuss can be found on my website, marishapink.com. And today I'm going to be joined by none other than award-winning documentary film producer Laura Shakam. Now, Laura has a very interesting escape story because she turned down a place at a law conversion course in order to get into filmmaking. And it was only by chance that she actually discovered filmmaking might be something that she wanted to do. It took a little while, but eventually she found her niche and she now makes her living producing hard-hitting documentary films which have a social or political issue at their heart. Laura first cut her production teeth on the feature-length documentary Just Do It which is an anthropological study into the secretive world of environmentalist direct action, or, as Laura described it during our interview, a film that tries to show you that people who superglue themselves to banks aren't actually crazy. Last year, Laura produced the groundbreaking interactive web series 1 for 10, which was not only nominated for a Webby and selected by the Guardian newspaper as one of its top 10 web series for 2013, but also won a Best Web Series Award at the Raindance Film Festival and went on to be acquired by Channel 4. Laura is currently working on another feature-length documentary, and when she's not busy with her producing hat, she co-runs Kino London, which is the capital's only short film open mic night. As you can imagine, all of these pies that Laura has her fingers in made for a pretty interesting chat. So here's what happened when we caught up. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Escape Artists, Laura. It's really nice to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Um, You are obviously an award-winning filmmaker uh, and producer, but it's not always been that way for you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were doing before you embarked on that? exciting career path? Sure. So I, after school, um, I had sort of, after university even, applied to do a law conversion. Um, ran away to Paris in the interim, um, hoping to kind of live out a bit of a dream that I'd always had of living in Paris. Um, and I was teaching English there um, and waiting to get into my law conversion. But with a sort of slight anticipatory dread in my stomach <laughs> about the idea of becoming a lawyer and I wasn't quite, you know, wasn't quite settled on the idea. Um, by chance, I met a filmmaker, well, a guy who was about to start film school. Um, we ended up living together and he would sort of come home from film school and say, you know, here's my script. Do you want to just help me correct the grammatical errors? And I'm a stickler for grammar. So I was like, (laughs) yeah, sure, great. Love that. Um, And that's really how it started. Slowly, slowly, I got dragged into working on the shoots. And um, I suppose I'd never really thought that it was, that was a career path or it was even possible to kind of take that seriously as something you could do with your life. So I was just taking part, really enjoying it without thinking it could go anywhere, I guess. So you're in Paris and you're getting more and more involved in film and you're starting to think, I guess, that it could maybe be a a career path for you. Was it at that moment where you met this guy that that you really realised that or do you think you'd always kind of had it in you for a while that maybe you would love to do that if if you thought that you could? No, I don't think I'd even faintly considered it. So um, I thought that was kind of fairy tale, you know, what fairy tales are made of. Um, what I had always wanted to do was get into journalism or human rights law or kind of war journalism more. So um, 
something that was that married creativity and a political or social issue. Um, but film had really, yeah, never crossed my mind. <laughs> okay, so you're now obviously exposed to something and you're, mm-hmm. you know, your appetite's been wet. What, what happened next? How did you end up coming from Paris back to London to kind of pursue that? Yeah, so I got into law school and much to everyone's horror, turned it down. <laughs> um, decided to come back to London, not have to pay rent for a little while. Always a plus. Yeah. Um, and I essentially started volunteering on anything I could to do with film. So I would work the mornings until lunchtime teaching English to be able to kind of live a little bit. Um, and then every spare waking hour was spent volunteering. Um, so at first it was drama shorts that I was doing, so it wasn't even documentary. Um, it was literally anything. And I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this, but I answered ads pretending that I knew what that (laughs) job description was. I think that's quite a good idea. (laughs) Never had a bit, you know, I remember saying like, sure, I'll be a script supervisor. No idea what a script (laughs) supervisor was. Arrived at the shoot and everyone's going... You're, you're the continuity person, you know, you have to check which hand the glove was on before, and I didn't even know what it meant. Okay. Um, so I really threw myself in, essentially. <laughs> okay, so you must have done quite a lot of different roles then, that's, mm-hmm. you know, obviously quite different from what you do now. How did you decide that, you know, actually being a producer and, and producing these kind of uh, things was what you wanted to do in the great big world of film? Yeah. I think that I realised that I wasn't quite satisfied with drama um, and that was because personally I still had this kind of nagging part of my brain that really wanted to do something with a political or social motivation behind it and I just, for me, drama and fiction wasn't where I found that. Um, So I started to think about documentary and I guess that I just realised that I love solving puzzles and I love facilitating and making things possible. Um, and especially in the way that I work now, creative producing allows me to do all of those things. This is kind of like the holy grail for you. Yeah. <laughs> Dream <laughs> job and it's all, it's all kind of coming true. Um, do you want to talk us through a little bit more about the type of work? So you, mm-hmm. you mentioned you make documentary films. Who, who will it appeal to? So um, I guess the things that I've worked on so far have all had um, big, either big messages or uh, been trying to uncover a world that you wouldn't normally see um, with the impetus of sort of trying to motivate people, I guess, to do something or to feel something. Um, So the first film that I worked on was Just Do It, which was kind of an anthropological study of climate change activists, but really trying to engage with people to show the kind of humorous, fun side of direct action, you know, people super gluing themselves to banks aren't (laughs) mad, there's actually a reason behind it, and and what they do is fun, but also a witty way of drawing attention to the issue. Um, So, yeah, I guess everything that I work on has that element to it that's what I'm interested in is using okay. film as a way to uncover a world you wouldn't normally see but that hopefully makes you want to change a behavior or to find out more about something or so I mean with that in mind do you find that most of the people that 
come across your work mm-hmm. are already involved in that sort of social political landscape or do you find that it's more sort of you know general than that so yeah. members of the general public I think that's the natural audience are the people who already have those core beliefs of course but that's the challenge really with making these kind of films is trying to broaden that audience and find a new audience and not just preach the converted that's that for me is like the holy, the holy proper, girl proper hard hitting, change making, and how do you reach those people who wouldn't normally find them? Because of course, there's you know a great core group of people who lap that up and who love it, and it's great to make films that support your beliefs you already hold. But um, how do you actually reach the people who might change their minds and therefore might actually enact change? Because there's sure. people you need to. So, I mean, let's let's go with that then. If you, you have an idea for something, mm-hmm. and um, we're going to take uh, one for ten. Uh, recent, well, recent, last year it was out, a uh, documentary. How do you go from something as an idea mm-hmm. through to a final production? I mean, it must have so many steps along the way, and, and being the producer, you involved in every every single yeah. one of them. How, do, how does that happen? So I think, uh, well, you need to you start by developing your idea to the point where you can either get something on paper or you can tell people about it in a way that's coherent um, which is <laughs> always useful um, and uh, and then I suppose you want to build your team and at least have kind of core people who are involved who can start to put the wheels in motion um, even if that core team's just you I suppose even saying to yourself I'm going to take this seriously and give it time counts as you know building your core team okay. I might say um and and then you start to look at particularly with one for ten for example um we said okay what are what is this and what does it mean to the world so it's an interactive documentary which is an unusual form of documentary and in fact kind of groundbreaking and new in the documentary space so that's that's how what it means to the film world, and then what does it mean to the social issue world, which is, you know, these are short films that you can use to teach people about death row exonerees and all the flaws in the capital punishment system. So it was, for me, it was kind of separating out our assets in a way and saying, this is, you know, we are this in terms of a film and we are this in terms of an issue. And then building partnerships and going to different people to try and strengthen both of those things. Um, so for the film aspect, we try to you know get in touch with people who are interested in a new form of documentary and who might be able to either advise us or help us distribute, things like that. And then with the issue, we built a coalition of partner charities like Amnesty, Reprieve, The Innocence Project. Okay and got them on board to help us to agree to distribute the films but also to help us shape them so yeah i don't know if that was a very overarching no, I, think that, I mean <laughs> that's like really interesting because there's so many people involved and obviously yeah. as, a, as a producer keeping track of all of those yeah. things and making them happen is is not easy um the one <laughs> the and it requires a lot of organisation, yeah. I guess. Um, it's not. It's not going to be. Love a spreadsheet. That's what it is. I love a spreadsheet. <laughs> More spreadsheet. And I love a folder. <laughs> yeah. Um, what would you say then is is kind of the biggest challenge in, in putting something like that together? Is it is it getting those people to agree? Are people quite willing? I think if you're passionate, people are willing. Um, 
the hardest thing I guess is being taken seriously so you need to have done you know you can't just kind of go to people and say oh by the way throw away comment you know to think you're up for doing this sort of thing you really need to have done your work have um you know we put together we had a great website already in place so we'd worked for quite a few months before approaching the organization so we had something to show people we went off and made a pilot so we could prove that you know we've got what it takes okay. we know how to deliver we're capable of this <laughs> sort of we hope um yeah i suppose just giving people proof that you are the people who can do it and you know how to do it and you should be doing it um and then people you know it's very open people yeah. jump behind you and get behind yeah. the cause so the one for ten format was very very compact shall we say so you, yeah. you shot one day edited the next day mm-hmm. and uploaded to the web and, and kind of took questions from from people that are following on the journey what was that like in terms of you know having a, a you know, shoots and sometimes they planned really far in advance mm-hmm. and you've got a lot of time to go over the footage and edit what was it like being in that kind of compressed timeline um very exciting and very stressful and <laughs> you have to be incredibly flexible I suppose so um you know, we had our questions for our exonerees as we went to meet them, but we'd never met them before. Um, okay. We had no idea if they were going to turn up. Um, you know, we'd had phone calls with them, but lots of these people have spent 15, 20 years on death row and they don't necessarily like the telephone. They don't necessarily like email very much. Um, we fully expected that we would arrive at somebody's house and, you know, we would have got the address wrong or they just wouldn't be there or they, you know, would have thought it was a different day. There were so many things that could come wrong, essentially. <laughs> um, the real project of faith, you know. Um, and, yeah, I mean, but that's thrilling as well because, in a way, the form, the documentary form, just takes on a whole new life because it is true to itself suddenly, you know. Suddenly this is real verite or like we have to allow things to happen as they happen um so so yeah we would film with somebody probably for four hours bundle ourselves back into our rv we would have three of us logging that interview while one other person drove tried to get as far as we could that day about 600 miles on average um arrive at a campsite Somebody's making dinner, everyone else is kind of getting the footage in, like doing a paper edit, and then the next day it would be about a 13-hour edit and upload overnight. Um, yeah. It, it, and, and all this from, a, <laughs> from an RV and a campsite is yeah. absolutely... <laughs> it's yeah. kind of difficult to, to imagine, but also, like you said, quite thrilling and quite yeah. exciting and very kind of, like, real hard-hitting documentary film producer. Yeah. Um, other challenges that you faced I mean mm. what you know how how do you fund something like that it's obviously a big part of a producer's job is to find funding for these yeah. kind of things was it easy so when I first started talking to Will and Mark the directors of one for ten about this project I was so excited by the idea of a brand new format and bringing the audience with you and uploading to the internet immediately and then I started thinking about how you actually raise money for it. <laughs> and I would say it wasn't, I was still excited, but I could see that we were going to have some difficulties. So we went through traditionally with a film, um, 
you would go to film funds and then you would go to foundations who support the issue, if it's a social issue documentary. Um, and that's where you'd find your money or TV, for example. Obviously, TV was out because they were all going online immediately. Um, and of all of those traditional funders, there was only one where we could tip the box. They all wanted a 90-minute film to be the result. Okay. And we couldn't give them that. We could give them 10, 5 to 6-minute films, but we couldn't <laughs> give them a 90-minute film. Okay. So there was really only one one place for us to go. Um, so that was not going to be, you know, that was not going to kind of solve the problem. So we were really lucky to have one foundation grant and the rest was crowdfunding. Okay. Um, so this project, because it was meant to be breaking down that fourth wall and really kind of bringing the audience in, felt really suited to crowdfunding. And that's how we did it. So how, I mean, so I'm obviously yeah. familiar with, with mm -hmm. crowdfunding and I, and I use Kickstarter. Did you, which platform did you use? How did you find the experience? Did that add you know 10 more days to your schedule of obviously having to manage that process because it's quite involved yeah so we ran two campaigns for the first we used indiegogo okay and for the second kickstarter um and we i mean it's an enormous operation i can't you know i'm sure but <laughs> um there were three of us full time on it um and we i mean it was basically rallying support from all of so all of those coalition groups and all the amnesty chapters and the innocence project chapters all over the world and yeah. um you know blogging facebook twitter just trying to kind of galvanize support behind these films um and because of the nature of the project we hadn't i mean we had our pilot but we had to raise the money up front and so ordinarily with a film you'd be able to go to a funder and say here's some of it this okay. is, you know, this is what we've done, but we had to ask people to just have faith in it from the outset without having kind of seen anything. Um, so it was really hard work, but I would say that for me, the most amazing reward was actually the audience building. Um, you know, we raised £17,000 on the first one and 7000 on the second. And that's a phenomenal amount of yeah. money, you know. Yeah. <laughs> which allowed us, according to the budget, it allowed us to, you know, make the films. Um, but in terms of work to money ratio, it, I wouldn't say that it figures, the, you know, the maths doesn't mm. work out. But in terms of building an audience who were there waiting to see the films, it was phenomenal. And for me, you know, it doesn't matter how much you raise, it, actually it's worth it for the people the crowd rather than the funding I and, I, and I think a lot of other creatives would agree with you so I, mm. I know certainly for me that was one of the biggest things to come out of, mm. of kickstarting my book um and I've known a couple of other authors who've unfortunately tried and, and failed to meet their target mm. and, and kickstarting as you know is is all or, all nothing. or nothing but they've still had that because it, the visibility and the discoverability mm -hmm. of your work at quite an early stage in the production process yeah. you can't really put a price on that mm -hmm. and, and you know to, to kind of upload to these platforms is free so it's almost worth an exercise in itself it does it does involve a lot of hard mm -hmm. work as you've said but you can you, you know there are other takeaways besides the money which i don't think Absolutely. people you know who are who are contributing to these projects necessarily realize that that's you know that's as big a part of it 
I, and I think bigger. I think that those other things are much more valuable than the funding of it. I mean, of course, if you can't find money through traditional sources, it's brilliant that you can raise it through people who care and want to see the work. But actually, all the other things it gives you, I think, are much more valuable. They far outweigh the financial value. It's a really. long, it's a longer term relationship mm-hmm. that you you have the opportunity to build. And I guess the funding, the, the money, when the money's gone, the money's gone. Yeah. But that that ongoing relationship with people that batch you from the beginning have a real vested interest in and kind of seeing things through to their completion and then seeing what you do next. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, I mean, I would always advocate for crowdfunding on that basis, basically. Um, <laughs> and I also think the work that it forces you to do is incredibly valuable. So, you know, I wouldn't have spent that time at that stage building those audiences. I wouldn't have spent that time going to those groups and fostering those relationships to that extent at that stage. Maybe further down the line, but all of that was so valuable and I just wouldn't have had a reason to do it and I wouldn't have had a reason to talk about the project for a month. <laughs> and I think that's the thing is that there's a, you know, there's a, it's a and you live and you, you learn. So mm-hmm. people kind of focus so much on the product, then try to build an audience for the product, whereas actually you need to be doing the two alongside of each other or do, building that audience first yeah. and building those relationships that you actually have something to present to them and somebody to present to by the time you've you know, yeah. finished all that, that hard work. Kickstarter, crowdfunding, obviously one way to discover things as we've discussed. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your Kino London project, which is a, another huge platform, which is very, very exciting, I think. Yeah. So Kino um, is actually part of a global network. Um, it started in Montreal before the millennium, and a group of filmmakers decided to make a film a month before, you know, clock turned midnight on the millennium thinking that the world would end so they better make a film a month okay. you know to kind of document the build-up I don't know what they thought would become of the films or why <laughs> like it was when important. everyone's gone yeah <laughs> so yeah no audience to yeah. watch the films um and after the world didn't end obviously they thought great that was brilliant fun let's just keep making a film a month um and from that grew Kino so yeah there are cells all over the world we're Kino London um and essentially uh, we are a short film night, a monthly screening, but we're open mic, so a bit like an open mic comedy night or a stand-up night or whatever. Um, we screen anything as long as it's under six minutes long on DVD and has our logo on the end, and we don't watch it in advance. So we're okay. entirely non-competitive. You know, there's, there are thousands of film nights in London, but everything is very curated, and for us, we think filmmakers become better filmmakers by being able to put their work out into the open and sharing their work with other people in a kind of supportive environment, not an environment that's testing you or judging you. So, so yeah, absolutely anything. <laughs> and it really is anything. Um, <laughs> it's always a surprising mix back. But that's great because we haven't seen the films and the audience hasn't seen the films, so we share something really nice in the process of screening them as well. Um, so that's a monthly night, but alongside it, every month we run a challenge film. So the audience vote on a title or on a genre or some form of inspiration. It's often not that inspiring, but we try <laughs> We try our best. Um, and anyone who wants to make that film can come and meet us in the interval and we put a team together. And they okay. normally have never worked together before. They go off, they have a month and they screen it at the next 
It's pretty cool, really, it's isn't great. it? It's great. Yeah. So we've got lots of professional relationships have formed now out of that. You know, people have kind of gone, oh, wow, we work really well together. That was great. Let's keep doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we do the same thing with other organisations. So with the Tate, we ran a filmmaking competition for them and you had 48 hours to make a film. But um, we secured access to the galleries for filmmakers, which is something you never normally get. So we're always trying to find ways to give filmmakers new forms of inspiration or new opportunities to basically build networks and become better filmmakers. Which is absolutely invaluable, really, and, and very kind of, you know, very social of you, yeah. giving back, <laughs> by keeping with kind of the work that you... That you I, think, I think we all love it because, you know, Kino for me has also been a source of inspiration and it's a place where I can go and say, you know, we've got a shoot coming up, can anyone help us with a camera? And, you know, you find your way through that network. Yeah. And I just think that's, you know, a huge kind of plank of what's exciting about working in a creative industry. Okay, so let's let's talk practicalities now. And this is this is my favourite question for people. What What does a day look like for you, an average day? Is there an average day? Um, yeah, sort of. <laughs> sort of. So, um, yeah, I guess it depends. I'd either be in the office, um, typing away, shooting off emails, um, and kind of spending the day on the phone or on email, um, or on a shoot. Um, and that's the most exciting kind of day. Um, so even the least exciting shoot is, um, kind of it's just a great opportunity and kind of a privilege to be able to um yeah to have have a moment inside someone else's life and you know ask them questions like you <laughs> <laughs> I, I was yeah. terribly afraid of showing my video set up to Laura because I'm pretty sure it's nothing <laughs> like what you're used to seeing on your shoots what would you say then is the best thing about doing what you do is it is it being on shoots um I think it's the opportunity to speak to ordinary people about all aspects of their lives you know to kind of have this glimpse into someone else's world to you know even if it's a corporate shoot for example but for just for that day or that half day to be plunged into something you would never normally be allowed to see or be allowed access to or to talk to somebody about the work that they do when they wouldn't you know I would never normally get to have that conversation um for me that's the most amazing thing and also feels like an extraordinary privilege really um and I guess with the kind of big features that we do it's even more you know more exaggerated because they the people in them are extraordinary not just ordinary <laughs> I like that <laughs> extraordinary not just ordinary <laughs> what about the worst thing what's the worst part of what you do um, having to ask people to give you their time, having to ask people to do things that they don't necessarily really want to do, having to ask people questions they don't necessarily want to answer. <laughs> um, yeah, I, th I think it's, they're part and parcel. So it feels like a privilege to be in someone's space and to be able to share that with them, but you're in someone's space. Try, try and you balance being intrusive yeah. with being investigative. Exactly. Okay. It's a fine line. <laughs> it's a fine line. 
And with that in mind, then, what would you say are kind of the, the most important personality traits and the most important factors for, for somebody who's thinking about kind of doing what you do? Do You must obviously tap is going to be really, mm, really huge. Yeah. But, but what else might they, you know, need to kind of exhibit to, to be successful? I think it's really useful if you are able to be as transparent and open as possible. So um, just being honest with people about, you know, I'm really sorry, but the film will only work if we do this again. I know I've asked you five times. I, I really, <laughs> but, you know, rather than kind of trying to come up with some excuse, it's just it's re- people really, you know, warm to that honesty and that openness, I think. And then warmth and being a, being a human being, really, I'd say, you know, being able to empathise and kind of look at someone and see that they're not happy with that question and move on and perhaps understand that, you need to ask your questions in a certain order um, to get the best out of people. So, yeah, I think being warm, empathetic and open, essentially. And, and I love spreadsheets, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which apparently all creatives do, so yeah. I, I'm really happy I'm not the only one. Um, so, final final practical mm. tip then for somebody who's thinking of doing it, what would you know? where would you advise them to start? Uh, I would say watch films have a look at who's made the films that you love write to the people who have made the films that you love tell them that you love those films and why you love those films and ask them you know if there are any opportunities available um yeah that's where I'd start and then I mean worked for me to just kind of throw myself into it um and I'd say getting as much experience as you can and you know if you think that if you loved a film and you go and spend some time with the people who've made that film, you might find out that actually you don't love making that kind of film. You know, it's important to test the, your beliefs and to kind of test the boundaries or the limits that you kind of set yourself. Um, and then just go for it. Just make stuff. Produce. <laughs> go for yeah. and produce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So what, what are you going to be doing for the, the next 12 months? What do we expect to see from... From you. Um, so as a result of One for Ten, uh, we are making a feature documentary about capital punishment, because uh, we're gluttons for punishment. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we've shot a third, we are continuing, we're in production, and hopefully you'll see a feature documentary in a cinema near you in the spring next year. Exciting. <laughs> Very exciting. Yeah. And for anybody who's watching or listening who wants to find out more about some of the work that you've already mm-hmm. done, where can they where can they find it? So one for ten.com for all of those films. They're all available for free online. Um kinolondon.com for any information about Kino. Um and real nice R E E L uh co dot uk. Thought you were a stickler for grammar. <laughs> yeah, well, film real. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not in love with that pun, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, realnice.co.uk for all the rest of the stuff we do. So that's it for today. Thank you very much for being our guest on Escape Artists, Pleasure. Laura. It was lovely to have you. This was the second episode of Escape Artists. We will be back in a fortnight where my guest will be Emma Bamford, who's the former editor of the Eye newspaper, who has a very exciting escape story running off to Southeast Asia to be part of a sailing boat and following that up by writing a travel memoir that's going to be published by Bloomsbury. Uh, you can find out more about Escape Artist on my website. It's mauritiapink.com. You can hit me up on Twitter at mauritiapink. 
Um, and to make sure you don't miss the next episode, uh, be sure to sign up to the newsletter on the website. And this week for your troubles, the lovely Laura has given us three copies of One for Ten on DVD, as well as some very cool tote bags. So I'll be picking uh, some winners off of the mailing list. Make sure you sign up. You've got to be in it to win it. And I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.